Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Associate Pastor Reverend Dave Kiefer. We're continuing our walk through the the book of Colossians. And I should warn you ahead of time, this is probably going to be one of the shortest sermons I've ever uh, preached here at Westminster, so I'm sure the kids are excited about that. But uh, we're walking through Colossians, and uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians presents to us, starting in chapter 1, Jesus as the image of the invisible God. In Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Jesus, God has reconciled all things, making peace by Jesus' blood on the cross. And the result of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is that those who were once alienated and far off from God, even hostile to God, can be reconciled to God if only they repent of their sins and trust in what Jesus has done for them. This is the good news of the gospel. And as Paul proceeds from chapter 1 to chapter 2, he clarifies that this reconciliation with God that Jesus secured for us is not merely a new legal status, but it's also a spiritual reality. And it's summarized as a mystery that is captured in chapter 1, verse 27. And the mystery is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Therefore, Christian reconciliation with God is, is not merely God with you or God for you, even though that is wonderful news. But it's more than that. It's that His life is even more intimately tied to yours and yours to His than you can ever imagine. And we call this the mystery of the gospel. And the mystery of the gospel is our union with God through Jesus Christ. And this union with God is represented throughout the letter of Paul to the Colossians by the words, in him or in Christ. In chapter 2, verse 6, we walk in him. Verse 7, rooted and built up in him. Verse 10 of chapter 2, we're filled in him. And then it goes on and says, Jesus is the head from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, and it grows and the growth is from God. And the amazing thing is that this union with God through Christ is not only personal, it's not only my union with Christ and your union with Christ, but it's corporate, it's our union with Christ. In other words, all those in Christ have been buried with him in baptism and raised with him to new life through faith in what he has accomplished. We were dead in sin but made alive together with him in his resurrection. Again, in Christ, we died in him and we're raised with him. Colossians 1.12 in the bulletin, I have it printed there. It says, we were once strangers and aliens, but we've been brought into God's family because we are in Christ and now we share in this family inheritance. So Paul concludes that our union with Christ, and this is the big point, it literally changes everything. It changes everything, for it means that Christianity is unlike any other religion, right? It is, it is no man-made religion based on rituals and regulations. 
It's, it's not a, a human construct. Paul clarifies as much when he says in chapter 2, verse 23, these religious human constructs has an appearance of wisdom in the promoting of self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the, of, of the flesh. In other words, Christianity, true biblical Christianity, is not just another religion in a row. It's not just another human construct among many. It has nothing to do with our effort or our ability to comprehend God or our effort to get close to God and be reconciled to God, but it has everything to do with what God has done, the almighty and incomprehensible God has done, that He has revealed Himself, that God has bent down, He has come near in the person of Jesus to show us what God is like, and He has done all that is necessary to accomplish our salvation, to win us back to himself by justly and mercifully reconciling us to himself through his life, death, and resurrection. This is the good news. This is in Christ. And this understanding of being in Christ, connected to him, frames our interpretation of chapter 3 here, which is what we're going to study this evening. In this section, Paul is going to flesh out two aspects of our union with Christ, death and life. And last week, Dr. Walker focused on the death part of that union. As Paul said in chapter 3, verse 3, for in Christ you have died. In other words, if you are a Christian in a very real spiritual way, when Christ died, you died in him. If you are united to Christ, then your old man has died with Christ and in Christ. And now, Verse uh, three, chap- uh, chapter 3 continues, your life is hidden with Christ in God. So last week, Chris walked us through what it means that we have died in Christ, and uh, it means that we've put to death all kinds of sin and idolatry, and in uh, verses 5 through 8 of, the, uh, of chapter 3, Paul gives many examples of what needs to be put to death, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, wrath, malice, slander, obscenity, lying. Chris went through all that last week. But this week, I'm going to walk through the second half or the second aspect of our union with Christ, and that is new life, that in Christ we have been raised with Christ, and our life is now hidden with God in Jesus Christ. So let us pray, and we'll jump into the text. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We praise you that you are God of revelation. And our hope isn't that we are just following another religion where we try to figure out who you are and we try to get right with you. How could we ever know the God of the universe? But our hope is that that the God who is has revealed himself to us, that you have come down, that you have made yourself known that you have spoken, and that you have come near in the person of Jesus Christ so that we can know who you are, we can know your character, we can know your heart, and we can see what you have done for us in order to redeem us from our sin and our hopelessness. And so, Lord, we pray this evening that as we learn what it means to live in Christ, that you would help us to dress ourselves in Him. Father, I pray for my dear brothers and sisters here as I pray for myself. Send your Holy Spirit to reveal your word to us. 
In Jesus' name, amen. All right, picking up here in chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. As you read through this passage, there seems to be an undeniable relationship between how we identify and how we dress. And it's not foolproof, of course, but there's a high correlation. And we know this not just from this passage, but from just opening our eyes and looking around us and observing people's behavior. If someone walks into a job interview with pink hair or blue hair, um, it's uh, more likely that they identify with progressive values than conservative values, right? We don't even have to think about that. Both those who wear traditional clothing, maybe plain clothing, as well as those who update their wardrobe every season to keep up with the latest fashion, are communicating their beliefs about themselves and their worldview values. And parents notice this with their kids, right? Especially when you get to the teenage years, the older kids, and they begin to make their own choices about what to wear. And it can be really encouraging to a parent when a young boy who previously cared less about what he looked like or what he smelled like finally starts to care, usually because some cute girl at school said, you smell. (laughs) And even though we've been trying to get them to care about what they look like, and they didn't listen. Now, all of a sudden, they care, and they wear nice clothes, and they take a shower, and they use deodorant. It's a wonderful thing that we celebrate, right? And we can see that they're beginning to see themselves as a young man, and it's reflected in how they dress. But it can be a little concerning when teenagers stop wearing socially appropriate clothing and start to wear clothes that communicate one of several things. Maybe they communicate, I'm angry, and I want everyone to know it. Or their clothes are meant to communicate, I'm insecure, and I want to be invisible. Now, I'm not just picking on teenagers, right? Adults do it too. We all do this. My point is, there is a strong correlation between how we view ourselves our identity, and how we dress. And that is why Paul links identity language and wardrobe language. Notice verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And then before he describes how a Christian should dress himself, spiritually speaking, he reminds them of their identity as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now, a few observations as gods. Those are two words, as gods, but they're very profound words, as gods. It means if you are in Christ, you belong to God. In other words, as Christians, we've given up our right to autonomy. 
Since we have died in Christ, we, we no longer belong to ourselves. That old identity of declaring our independence from God is now dead in Christ. When I got married to my beautiful wife, Marty, I took on two similar profound words, as Marty's, right? As Marty's husband, I had to give up my autonomy. I belong to her, she belongs to me. And as my wife, she now has a say in my life about my schedule and my priorities and even how I dress. She's like, are you wearing that? Because I don't just reflect myself, but I reflect her. And in the same way, the first thing Paul reminds his followers, the followers of Jesus, is that they are gods. They belong to God. They represent him. So every decision they make needs to be made with reference to their God, who is their king and the one to whom they belong. Next, he adds two more words, and these are also remarkable words, right? So the first two words are as gods, but the second two remarkable words are chosen one as God's chosen ones. Now notice, he says God's chosen ones, not as God's choice ones. The word choice refers to being truly exceptional. A choice meat is the finest cut, right? Choice meat is grade A meat. The best eggs are grade A A eggs. But Christians are not described as choice, they're described as chosen. So if you're a Christian, there's nothing inherent about you as a Christian that calls God to choose you. Sinners are not considered grade A. Broken people defiled by sin do not represent the finest cut. A Christian is chosen by God not because they are particularly great or wonderful, but because he, the Lord himself, is particularly great and wonderful. He chose you in Christ simply because he is amazing and loving. Now, while it's quite humbling to admit that there's nothing uniquely amazing about you or me that made any of us worthy of God's love, it's also quite comforting, for it means that God loves me simply because he chose to love me. There's nothing that I did to earn his love, and so there's nothing I can do to lose it. And in fact, his love toward me isn't dependent on what I do, but what he has chosen to do. And when he chose to do it was, if we look at other parts of scripture, he chose to love me like this before the foundation of the world. He chose me to be his. There's three more words that are remarkable that give us a clear understanding of our identity. And the next three words are these, holy and beloved. And so we are to put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Holy and beloved. What does holy mean? Holy means to be set apart for special use. Beloved means to be the object of another person's love. Our identity in Christ means we are set apart by God for his special purposes. And there are many examples of something being set apart for a special or a noble purpose. Olympians are set apart by their country to represent their country. Senators are set apart to represent their constituency. But the key metaphor of the Bible 
of being set apart is being set apart as royal children. In Christ, we are sons and daughters of the King of Kings. And as the children of the King, we are guaranteed the King's inheritance. That's why Paul wrote earlier in Colossians 1, verses 10 and 12, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. As royal children of the King of Kings, we receive the King's inheritance. So there you have it. There you have it. Our identity in Christ are those who belong to God. We are His. We are chosen despite our sin and brokenness, simply because He's loving and gracious. We are holy, set apart for immensely meaningful and noble purposes. And to live as His divine children, we're called to represent our Heavenly Father by walking in a manner worthy of Him, and uh, giving thanks to him because he's qualified us as his children to share in a great inheritance, the everlasting kingdom of God. So, if you are royal children, then the second point of tonight's sermon is, if that's who you are, how should you dress? Well, you should dress like royalty. Notice, it's not sufficient to just put off the old clothes of sin and idolatry, only putting off makes you vulnerable to ongoing shame, the shame of nakedness. But idolatry must be replaced by true worship. Sinful thoughts and behaviors must be replaced by righteous thoughts and behaviors. We can't simply cast off the old clothes. We must replace the old wardrobe with a new one by putting on new, clean clothes. And these clothes are the most beautiful robes of all. So let's pick up in verse 12 and read again. It says, put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and he defines that, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. And then above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The most beautiful outfits are not just made with the finest materials, but in addition to the fine materials, they are assembled, they're layered and cut and tailored to make the person wearing it look stunning. When a woman shops for a wedding dress, she's not just looking for great material and a beautiful design. What is she looking for? She's looking for the dress that is perfect for her, tailor-fit to bring out her unique beauty. And in the same way, the materials presented here are not just the finest materials. Of course, compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience are the finest materials a Christian can clothe themselves in. But these materials, notice, they are bound together in perfect harmony by something that makes it tailor-fit to each person to bring out their unique beauty. What are they tailor-fit with? The love of God. Notice verse 14. And above all, above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. In other words, 
God's love for you in Christ shapes our understanding of compassion and kindness and humility and patience. See, we become uniquely beautiful not when we are compassionate for compassion's sake, but when we are compassionate for Christ's sake. In other words, the world has a habit of defining all of these words in very different ways, of defining compassion apart from Christ's love. And the streets of San Francisco are filled with the mentally ill and homeless as a result of such compassion. But we see here compassion not bound by God's love. It's like, it's like a designer who makes a dress to show off the dress and not to beautify the person wearing the dress. Such fashion shows tend toward the ridiculous, where someone's wearing like a lampshade on their head. And I've never seen anyone have much use for such apparel in the real world. But the love of God, illustrated through God's written word, manifested most powerfully in the person of Christ, binds everything together in perfect harmony and beautifies God's people. This love of God, tailored fit, tailored fit brings together the rest of the wardrobe to someone's particular calling and giftings and experience. In other words, the love of God not only enables each of us to be compassionate in the general sense, but it enables us to have a wise compassion. What does compassion look like in this situation? What does patience look like in this particular relationship when we're called to bear with one another and forgive one another? And so it's bound together by God's love. Everything is stitched together and becomes beautiful unto the glory of God. So lastly, Paul chooses one more piece of advice uh, to give in verse 15. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart to which you have been called in one body and be thankful Thus far, I've illustrated the impact of identity on one's wardrobe, right? When you recognize you are royalty, you start to dress like royalty. In other words, an internal sense of self-worth and dignity as those made not just in the image of God but redeemed for the image of God will begin to manifest itself outwardly. And it seems to me that verses 12 through 14 trace this inside-out change. Know who you are and dress accordingly. But verse 15 seemingly points in the opposite direction to an outside-in change. For after talking about how a Christian should dress, committing themselves to put on compassion, humility, meekness, an internal change of heart results. In other words, letting Christ rule in your heart. A friend of mine was telling me about a young man who was really struggling in life. This young man, young adult, was, was aimless and depressed. He dressed like a slob. He was 30 pounds overweight. He irritated every authority figure in his life with his sense of entitlement this young man was at the end of his rope, 
And uh, after watching a late-night be-all-you-can-be Army video, he decided to sign up for the Army. And his parents dropped him off at boot camp, feeling a little bit cynical about his ability to stick it out and make it through. However, when they returned many weeks later, they were looking for their son in the crowd of graduates, and they could not pick their son out of the crowd. All the graduates were lined up in their dress uniforms, but none of them looked like their little boy. And it was only after the graduation when their son walked toward his parents, and he said, Mom and Dad, it's me, that they recognized him. Standing before them was no boy, but a man, transformed, dressed in a uniform, lean, clean, confident, and honorable. And they never imagined their son would fit the image of the uniform. As they got ready and packed up and took off for home, he had taken off his uniform to drive home, and he seemed a little bit more like himself, a little bit more laid back. But his parents noticed a strange and wonderful thing happen, that whenever their son put on the dress uniform, he walked and talked with a clear sense of dignity and confidence, a peace of heart, you might say, a greater sense of gratitude. In other words, the way he dressed affected his heart attitude. How does this apply? Recognizing and remembering you are a son or daughter of the king will change the way you act and behave. In other words, having a strong inner sense of your identity in Christ brings about inside-out change. That is true, but never underestimate the reality and the significance of outside-in change. In other words, don't wait to feel like you're a royal, royal heir of the king before acting like one. Act like a royal heir of God even when you don't feel like it, even when you feel crummy and undeserving, but act like it and your heart will follow. Put on Christ-like compassion and patience even when you don't feel like it, and your heart will follow. Commit to dressing yourself in humility even when you want to boast about yourself and prove yourself. Bind everything together in sacrificial love to God even when you're feeling indifferent. And as you put on the royal robes of Christian obedience, the peace of Christ will start to rule in your heart if you only let it, and gratitude will return. Sometimes God asks you to dress for action before he allows you to feel peace in your heart. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word that teaches us how to dress appropriately, not just to put off sin and idolatry, but to replace sin with obedience, to replace idolatry with true heart-captivating worship of you, to turn our face to you and seek to glorify you and lift up your name. Heavenly Father, I pray for my dear brothers and sisters, help us to dress ourselves in this beautiful robe 
of Christian obedience, of compassion and humility and, and meekness. Lord, help us to bind it all together in love, primarily love as you define it, as it's defined in your word, as it's illustrated in the person of Christ. And as we do that, all of these areas of obedience become tailored fit for how you've called us to live and dress, tailored fit to who we are, to our personality and our experiences and our giftedness. And we pray that you would use that to to beautify us so that you might be glorified, so that people might see a difference in us and begin to ask questions about you. Father, we pray this for your glory, for our greater joy, and for the growth of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.